You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So several years ago in a large city out west, rumors spread that a certain Catholic woman was having visions of Jesus. Now the reports reached the archbishop, so of course he decided to check her out. You know, there's always a fine line between the authentic mystic and the lunatic fringe. Is it true, ma'am, that you have visions of Jesus? Asked the cleric. Yes, the woman replied. Well, next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past. Exactly. Please call me if anything happens. Well, ten days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of a recent apparition. Please come, she said. And within the hour, the archbishop arrived. He trusted eye-to-eye contact. You just told me on the phone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. So did you do what I asked? Yes, bishop. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. The bishop leaned forward with anticipation and his eyes narrowing. And what did he say? And she grabbed his hands and looked him straight in the eye and said, His exact words were, I cannot remember. Do we believe such an audacious claim? I mean, maybe we can come to terms with God forgiving our sin or overlooking our offenses, but forgetting them feels a bit extreme. Is he not keeping count? I mean, we are in the record-keeping business. We keep tabs. We make mental notes. We're not liable or prone to forget certain things. And maybe, maybe that is what is so markedly different between us and Jesus. For us, it is impossible to forget. But for God, it seems so simple. How? It's because the story is about grace, and grace only happens in community. There is not grace for objects because objects cannot receive grace. There is not grace for things. Things cannot receive grace. There is not grace for places or for spaces or for time. There is only grace for people. The entire thing is built on grace, grounded in the perfect community of love, which we call the Trinity. The story of community goes back to the beginning. God is communal love. The most foundational thing about God is not something abstract, but something concrete. He is a father. And since God, before all things, is a father and not primarily a creator or a ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. Being a father is not some type of day job. And then at night he turns back to being merely God. He is father all the way down. He creates as father and he rules as father and he loves as father and because the son has always existed god the father has always loved god the son it is not something that he does it is exactly who he is and it is out of that love that god creates see the backdrop of genesis 1 through 3 can be compared to other accounts of the creation narrative everyone has a theory of how the world began and that was no different for ancient civilizations Babylon, for instance, had the creation theory called Enuma Elish. There, the god Marduk puts it bluntly. He will create humans to have slaves. That way, the gods can sit back and live off the labor of their human workforce. The central aim of the gods of Babylon were about power. They were about control. In essence, it was about being served, being placated. It was not life-giving 
outgoing love. The distinctive marker of Yahweh is that before he ever creates, he loves. And he creates out of that love. He is the triune God. Love only exists in relationship. And we read in Genesis 1 and 2, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Barely a sentence into the story of God and his world, we get a hint, a a shadow, a faint whisper of the Trinity that, that God is eternally communal and thus eternally loving. And out of that love, he creates us. And just as Jesus is sent out into the wilderness after he receives a blessing from the Father, so too in Genesis 1, the Spirit appears as the power by which God's word goes out into the lifeless void. In the very beginning, God creates by his word that would later become flesh, and he does so by sending out his word in the power of his spirit, or what the translation literally means, and the breath was hovering over the face of the waters. It is by his word through his spirit that he breathes us into the world. So being made like him in his image, we are made for perfect communal relationship. The invitation is to communion with God, and the invitation is into community with others. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve are lured in by the serpent and the tempting lie to believe that we can and want to be God is just too enticing for them. So Adam and Eve fall and the first thing they do is hide. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then we know that the first recorded sin after that is the murder of a brother by another brother. The world turns so dark, so fast. But what are the first reactions of God in both situations? Rich Philotus says that the entirety of our relationship to God can be summed up in the questions found in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. In Genesis 3, after Adam sins, God's first question is, where are you? <clears throat> what a question. Is God somehow lost in the world's first game of hide and seek? Nah, it's just the first invitation that God asks for, vulnerability and intimacy. He is most interested in pursuing us and his most gentle tactic is a disarming question, where are you? And the answer is behind fig leaves. See, what they were covering up was less their sin, more their feeling of being exposed. Less about the fruit off the tree and more the immediate and dominating feeling of complete inadequacy. Might you ponder that just for a moment? Where are you in relation to God's presence? The lie is that the safest place we can be is behind fig leaves. The truth is the safest place we can be is openly exposed because only when we are openly exposed are we able to receive love. The story is not about appearances. It's about grace. And we intellectually agree grace is good, but how much of that do we live into is the real question. And because of what they experience, they are sent out of the garden. But the scandal of the story is they are not sent out of the garden alone. See, the popular narrative of the Bible is that God created a world. It turned against him, and he's overly frustrated by our attempts to please him. But the real story of the scriptures is the story of a pursuing God who's constantly asking us, Where are you? Come out from hiding. 
Here God does not shun them, shame them, or blow them up. He actually goes after them. The story is about grace. And then in Genesis 4, after Cain sins, God's first question is, where is your brother? It's not as if God doesn't know. It's more akin to asking Cain to own it, to come out into the light, to not hide behind the envy of his brother's offering, but to confess his own callousness toward him. The God of love is deeply invested in our personal communion with him and our corporate one. It is not merely about personal piety. It is about communal commitment. Our relationship to God void of our deep concern for our siblings is a spirituality that is not reflective of the ministry of God in the scriptures, starting with Adam and Eve's sons. Genesis 1-3 through tells us this. We were made to be loved by God. Sin has separated us not only from God, but from one another. And we have convinced ourselves now that we cannot be loved by God. Or one another. And Genesis 3.16 says, Now I will prove my love to you. And that love will not only be vertical, but horizontal. And as the story continues, we move from the beginning to the people of God. See, in Exodus, God's people are slaves in Egypt, brutalized, mistreated. They need help. They have nothing to offer. They are free labor to the Egyptian empire. And God calls his people Israel, my firstborn son. And he carries his people as a father carries his son, it says in Deuteronomy. The pervasive image throughout the Old Testament is God as father and Israel as child. But then read the accounts of the people of God. They desecrated the name of God. They worshipped idols. They forgot God. They complained incessantly. When God is dropping bread from the skies every morning, they longed to be back in chains, ungrateful for the miracle of bread. And yet it was God who never left them. Why? Because Israel was God's beloved, and the story is about grace. The crossing of the Red Sea is Moses leading the people right up to the water and raising his rod, and the sea parts, and they just walk. The crossing of the Jordan River is Joshua commanding the priest to go stand knee-deep in the water and wait for the tide to rise back up, and they just walk. The march around the walls of Jericho seven times over seven days, and on the seventh day they take their trumpets, and in faith all they do is make a really loud noise, and the city crumbles. There is nothing inherently strong and mighty about Israel. There's nothing inherently moral or better about Israel. In fact, they are the underdog. They are the forgotten, they are the overlooked, and they are the ones that overlook God, and yet the God of Israel never takes his eyes off them. Why? Because the story is about grace. And then we see in Jesus that before his ministry ever starts, the Father blesses the Son. It's the mirror image of Genesis 1. Remember the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Of course, there's something deeply prophetic here. Go back to the Isaiah scroll where the Spirit of God is prophesied to anoint Jesus as Israel's king and commissions him as God's servant. But it's also deeply personal. Jesus experiences what we all long to hear. This is my son whom I love. Those words have so much power. Yahweh is not impersonal, but deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the light of the Father towards the Son and stirs up the delight of the Son towards the Father. The message from the Father to the Son 
through the Spirit, before you have done anything in my name, before you have accomplished what our purposes are in the world, before the kingdom breaks forth, receive my blessing. I love you. Jesus is God's beloved. And then we get to us. Maybe the greatest injustice we can do to God is to not believe that he loves us, that he loves you. Everything in your job, everything in your culture, everything in your life is about inputs and outputs. It's basic economics, right? You invest, you get back. You pour in, it pours out. The reason we have 401ks and Roth IRAs is because we are trusting that savings is going to be waiting on us in years to come. Our investment pays dividends and we are rewarded for our discipline. And so we place our view of economics and earnings on top of our life in God. Life should be going better for me because I am doing better for it. God, look what I am doing for you. Look what I am sacrificing for you. Love me. Approve of me. Be pleased with me. God says, I am not pleased with you because of what you think you can do for me. Your offering is not sufficient. I am sufficient. I love you because I love you. I think our biggest challenge is that we are in denial of that. Jesus' work wasn't really enough. Consider the nuance between Peter and Judas. Right? They are interesting foils to one another because each of them have their own denial moment. Peter fully embraces denying Jesus three different times over the course of an evening. He doesn't even want to be associated with him, much less seen as an actual disciple. But the turning point was the fearful echo of a rooster howling, and it was a moment to face his shadow. The text says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Judas, on the other hand, often betrays Jesus in full bloom of everyone, but then Judas too appears to be full of remorse, and I think we tend to forget this. Matthew 27 says, When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. I have sinned, he said. Their stories have such different endings. One ends up being the key bedrock the early church is built on, and the other takes his own life. Two men who followed Jesus during the same time, ran in the same circle, heard the same teaching born from the same culture, and yet their lives took such drastic turns, and both happened when they got exposed. What is the difference? Well, one was willing to face a shadow, fearful as it might be. Peter befriended the imposter within. Judas raged against him. See, Peter was willing to accept the reality of his own brokenness that would lead to accepting the reality of unmeasurable grace. And Judas was also willing to accept the reality of his own brokenness, but was unwilling to accept the gift of undeserved grace. Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. And Judas denied Jesus the opportunity to ever love him. See, Judas gets his rap of the fake disciple, right? the evil one, the one who turned his back, who never really got it. I mean, how could he? But in my reading of this, Judas was not that far from grace. In fact, I would argue he was on the precipice of it. He was on the brink. He just could not fathom receiving it. His betrayal was too deep, his wound was too gaping, but it was in that moment where grace could actually find him. 
And I think Judas is a helpful mirror for us. See, we actually have a pretty good sense of the brokenness of our lives. But we aren't at the point of facing the shadow of our lives and receiving love. Now, why would I spend the first half of this teaching on something that feels like it inherently has nothing to do with the text that was read in 1 Peter? It's because the subtext of the exhortation that Peter gives is remember, the story is about grace. Don't just try harder. Receive first. Receive. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We can't become the type of people who are full of these character traits if we have not first received. I mean, there is so much in the scriptures about doing, so much about embodying. Our discipleship does not exist without participating. It is wildly ridiculous that God would include us, but there is no real story without being included. But our doing never comes from our earning. It only comes from receiving. How is your life marked by receiving the love of God? In Abba's Child, Bernie Manning says, As we come to grips with our own selfishness and stupidity, we make friends with the imposter and accept that we are impoverished and broken and realize that if we were not, we would be God. The art of gentleness toward ourselves leads to being gentle with others and is a natural prerequisite for our presence to God in prayer. Facing God with our whole selves is our highway to freedom. Lying to God and thus lying to ourselves is our form of denial. See, on the front end, we act like Peter. Deny, deny, deny. And on the back end, we act like Judas. Deny, deny, deny. On the front end, it's about the exterior look. And on the back end, it's about the interior life. Receive the love of God. And Peter's exhortation can be summed up in about four words. Unity, mercy, humility, and blessing. The church at large speaks a lot about unity. But I want you to consider for a second that you are in a world that is extremely hostile to the church, to your personal faith and how that gets expressed, and therefore is hostile to your siblings in the faith. There is a potential threat on your life. You might be thrown in jail, you might be beaten, or you might be publicly shamed anytime you visit the supermarket or the post office. There is a legitimate threat of legitimate persecution. Having unity of mind, then, is a much more dire matter because you need others to not only thrive, but to survive. Secondary issues end up taking a back seat because you need each other. And unfortunately, in, in our climate, it can often feel like you can follow Jesus without needing each other. Or if one thing sets you off, it is easy to go shop around until the place you find fits what you are looking for. That is until they too fail to meet your expectations and you start the process all over again. See, for us, unity is not agreeing on everything. It's not looking like everyone. And it's not singing kumbaya around the campfire. Total agreement, monolithic in every way where surface level relationships flourish is uniformity, not unity. And the scriptures speak of churches where there is great challenge and great diversity and great uniqueness in gifts and skills and conflict and culture. 
Having unity of mind means amidst the variations and expressions of all those things, Jesus is at the bottom. When you drill down to the core basis, it is a desire to open-handedly receive God's love and walk that out in relationship. Unity, then, is woven into creation. Right from environmental ecosystems to the harmony of the human body to the functioning of a family. But you know that the nervous system is not the same as the skeletal system. The muscles don't perform the same as the stomach. But each working together in accord with what their functions are make up the human body. Our respective functions may look a little different, but walking and working and worshiping alongside each other, we are reminded of one thing. We are the church, the bride. Our functions contribute to the story that they are in, but they don't supersede it. Second, we read the words sympathy and brotherly love. So I'm going to sum that up in one word, which is mercy. I want you to consider this for a moment. Each encounter with a brother or a sister is a mysterious encounter with Jesus himself. When Cornelius receives the vision from God that Simon Peter will visit him, and Peter receives the vision from God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which would have been Cornelius, and Peter appears at the front step of Cornelius' house, do you know what Cornelius' first reaction was? When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Cornelius' action was not the right action, but his impulse was not that far off. Are we in genuine awe at who God has placed in front of us? Do we treat each other with such honor and dignity, such sympathy and sibling love, that our impulse might be, Look at this man, look at this woman, look at what God is doing in their life. That is love. The way we are with each other might be the truest test of our faith. How I treat a brother or sister from day to day, how I respond to the interruptions from people I dislike, how I deal with normal people in their normal confusion on a normal day is probably a better indication of my reverence for life and God than everything and anything else I say. Do we treat one another with mercy? I mean, consider the ways in which our culture rages against each other. I would argue that anger is the currency that our current culture is built on. My level of intensity and vocal inflection is reflective of my morality and honor. And there is a direct correlation between my anger and my righteousness. In the Second Mountain columnist for the New York Times, David Brooks, writes this. Individualism taken too far leads to tribalism. Hannah Arendt noticed the phenomenon decades ago. She looked into the lives of people who had become political fanatics, and she found two things, loneliness and spiritual emptiness. Loneliness is the common ground for terror. Tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of a community. It certainly does bind people together, but it is actually the dark twin of community. See, community is connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism is connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on common humanity. Tribalism on common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. The tribal mentality is a warrior mentality based on scarcity. Life is a battle for scarce resources, and it's always us versus them, a zero-sum game. The ends justify the means. 
Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Mistrust is the tribalist worldview. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. Hmm. Here comes the church offering a different way of being human in the world. One that offers mercy. When the Jewish tradition spoke of emotions, they didn't so much speak of it from a heart level, but from a guttural level. Mercy was synonymous with compassion. It was a guttural response. It happened in your bowels. And the magnetic draw of a church is the alternative society that it represents because of the alternative story it is living into. And when the culture of our church is marked more by mercy than by apathy, more compassion than animosity, more sympathy than contempt, by God's grace, we offer a better story. And then there's humility, a tender heart and a humble mind. Maybe one of the greatest advantages we have is that the Lord came way down, all the way down in the form of an infant. And he did not rise in artificial power or human control, but he was a nobody from nowhere who took up the simple task of woodworking and carving. And then he called a few fishermen and a few others out from their respective corners and gave them a simple invitation, follow after me, I will teach you the way. And that way did not lead to anywhere that anyone would want to go. He was the fullest human to ever live. He was the perfect man. That got him killed on a common criminal's cross. And we're still believing the lie that when I do enough for God, I will get rewarded with some type of earthly success, some type of physical badge of honor, some type of recognition or acknowledgement that I have accomplished something. No. A tender heart. Gentleness. Open to correction, open to gently correcting, firm in convictions, soft in delivery, open to what God might do with us and what God might ask of us. Fighting entitlement, cultivating gratitude, releasing our grip to control our life and surrendering to the life that God has for us. Humility. And finally, there's blessing. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. And there's two aspects here. There's giving and then there's receiving. And if I'm honest, I think a lot of us struggle with the idea of blessing people who don't revile us. Like we struggle with the idea of blessing people we get along with, who share our same outlook on the world, who have similar convictions, who have treated us with respect. We struggle to bless those people much less those who treat us with contempt. So what if we started off by just blessing one another? How do you bless people? Well, the first thing you can do is observe. I mean, there are so many people who love Jesus and who love following Jesus who are inspiring to watch in this church. And it only takes a slight moment of picking up your head and noticing who is doing what and who is going where. Are we noticing what God is doing in us and around us? Are we growing in our ability to pay attention to the movement of the Spirit among us? The kingdom of God is rarely flashy. In fact, so many of the metaphors in the Gospels are about the small, only slightly visible evidences that grow over time while it appeared no one was watching. But you can see them. Light is overcoming darkness. Wounds are getting healed. Strongholds are being broken. Let's look and listen and pay attention. But the second is encourage. 
We have to move from observation to action. Simply, simply noticing something in someone and never speaking them over someone is not enough. It has virtually no power. Thinking thoughts is futile if that's where it stops. But moving it from your eyes to your voice, that has power. The most transforming relationship outside my immediate family was a married couple who knew me for all of two months before they started affirming me. I've never felt so unbelievably humbled, cultivated so much gratitude for God and since the power of God within my body to live out the call of God on my life. It was Gene Dotson who said in 2007, Wesley, I believe God might be inviting you into pastoral ministry and even though you're a junior in high school, this is significantly worth exploring. And he went on to give me opportunities that I can still never repay him for. And that little sentence, sitting in his office as a scared 16-year-old kid, planted the seed of this church. It was Brian Meese years later who said, Wesley, do not shun the call of vocational ministry on your life just because you want to do something for God in the secular world. God has something for you and God is with you. And that was the moment over barbecue where... What was planted in me seven years before got watered again. It was Joey Garner who said to me in a hospital room in Turkey Creek, Wesley, just because God has not called you overseas to cross-cultural ministry does not mean that he is removing you from cross-cultural ministry. It is evident that the burden for cross-cultural ministry is in you. And that jump-started my relationship with Hussein, an Iraqi refugee who lives off Sutherland, who completely altered how I interacted with the world. And they didn't let fear or insecurity get in the way of speaking something over me. I mean, you all know this. There is significant power in words to bless someone, to pray a prayer of blessing over them, to speak a word of life into them, to acknowledge the presence of God through them. It changes people's trajectories. No one is struggling from too much encouragement. In a world filled with discouraging messages and images, we need the ministry of encouragement now more than ever. Bless one another. And then finally, repeat. Observe, encourage, repeat. The compelling power of the Spirit of God in Jill and Dave Guth came in the regularity of which they observed and spoke up over and over again. It was not a one-time thing. It was a weekly Friday meal where they would go around the entire table and speak a word of blessing over their kids, me included. And it wasn't something that, something they did for show. It was just who they were. Maybe yours is not an affirmation roundtable, but it is something. What might it mean to bless each other consistently and regularly? What if we became a people who were known for our encouragement? Who speaking a word of blessing was a natural default, not something that exerted tons and tons of energy. Pick up your head and ask the Spirit, who can I bless today? It's not some burdensome obligation. It's an opportunity to listen to what God might be asking of you and what God might want to communicate through you to another. It's just another way we get in on the story God is writing. Blessing. And then receiving. We end where we started. Receiving the blessing. This is our blessing that the words spoken by the Father to the Son are the words spoken to us because of the Son. The message of Genesis 1 and 2 was, I love you. The message of Genesis 3 was, I don't believe you love me. And the message of the rest of the scripture is, now you're going to see how much I love you. This is the blessing. It's 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. 
that the Lord would direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Jesus. To be so saturated by the very love of God, that is what I want for us. It's receiving the love of God. It's trusting in His promises. It's turning our attention and our affection and our desires and our pains and our wounds and our sins, our whole selves over to God. Why? Because the story is about grace. What it means to receive blessing is what it means to experience grace. We want to be known and we want to be loved. And to be fully known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. And to be fully loved and not known, that is inauthentic. But to be fully known and fully loved, that is what we get in God. And it's what we have the opportunity to experience here with each other. Now there is risk. There is so much risk involved. But it comes from a place of receiving blessing. And it ends in the place of receiving blessing. And the opportunity is ours if we would just learn to receive it. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.